If you have your Bible with you, open to Leviticus 8 and 9. And then once you have Leviticus, hold your place there and go back to Exodus 29. We're going to do something a little bit different to start this, uh, to start this morning by reading a section out of Exodus 29 and then reading a portion of Leviticus 9. So we'll be in Leviticus 8 and 9, but we will kick it off by looking at some verses in Exodus 29. Last week in um, our time in Leviticus, we did sort of a, an overview of the first seven chapters, uh, the main point of which is to say that when you get to the end of Exodus, and the Lord fills the tabernacle with his presence and with his glory. Moses and no one else is able to enter in because the glory of the Lord has filled it, with, which ends Exodus on a, on a dilemma, on a problem. If God intends to dwell with his people, and yet his people cannot come near, how will his people be able to enjoy the presence of the Lord? And Leviticus opens by telling us how that is going to be possible. God's people are able to draw near through a sacrifice that God provides. It's a sacrifice that opens the way for unholy people to meet with a holy God. And even when you get towards the last couple chapters in, say, latter part of 6 and into chapter 7, it's not only that God is providing sacrifices in order for his people to draw near, but God has provided or will provide a priest to offer up that sacrifice so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. So the Lord is the one who's providing the way for his people to draw near. So the sacrifices are the focus of chapters 1 through 7. 8 through 10, the focus shifts to the priests who are going to be doing the work of the sacrifices and offerings for the sake of the people. And that's where we are today. The focus is on God appointing and consecrating, that is, making holy priests that will serve him for the benefit of the people. So in Exodus 29, if you start with me down at verses 43 through 46, one of the things I, that I want you to see is that almost everything that happens in Leviticus 8 and 9 is actually contained in Exodus 29. That is to say, God has already made stipulations or given directions in Exodus 29. What we're seeing in, Exodus, or in Leviticus 8 and 9 is the execution of the directions that God gave back in Exodus 29 before the tabernacle was even completed. But, but notice here at, in Exodus 29, verses 43 through 46, the Lord says, I will meet there, speaking of the tabernacle, I will meet there, with the sons of Israel, and it will be consecrated, or it will be made holy by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Let me say two things before we hop over to Leviticus. 
that this brief passage makes clear. Number one, everything that we read in Leviticus 8 and 9 about the appointing, the installation of the priest, and the dramatic uh, ceremony that goes along with that, don't lose sight of the fact that ultimately the priest was given to benefit the people and the chief benefit or blessing that the priest was going to make available to the people was God. God is the gift. God is the reward. It's God's presence that the people are after. Everything that happens with the tabernacle, everything that happens with sacrifices, everything that happens with the priest is for the sake of being with God. You can't lose sight of that. This is good and gracious what God is doing for his people in Leviticus 8 and 9. It's not irrelevant. It's not cheap. It's not boring. And the second thing that we want to say is, there is a way, even in, Levit even in Exodus 29 to Leviticus 8 and 9, in which you have something like a promise fulfillment, right? You have in Exodus 29 the statement about what God will do, and then in Leviticus 8 and 9, we actually see God doing what he said he would do. This is important for us because we want to see, we want to acknowledge as people who have promises today that there is coming a point in time where God will once again dwell among his people. We want to say, God did it then, he can do it now. God promised that he was going to make his people ready for his presence. He promised that he would come, that he would make himself known. He promised that they would see him and know him, and he did so. So if he has promised us today that there is coming a point in time in which we will see and know him in a unique way, he is sure to fulfill the promise to us. We will see the Lord. So look with me in Leviticus 9. Start with me at verse 7, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Leviticus 9, 7 through 24, just so you can get a feel of where Leviticus 8 and 9 are moving to before we pull out some, uh, some points in this passage. Moses then said to Aaron, Leviticus 9, 7, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slaughtered the calf of the sin offering which was for himself. Aaron's sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar and poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. The fat and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver of the sin offering he then offered up in smoke on the altar just as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin, however, he burned with fire outside the camp. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. They handed the burnt offering to him in pieces with the head, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. He also washed the entrails and the legs and offered them up in smoke with the burnt offering on the altar. Then, verse 15, he presented the people's offering 
and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, and slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. He also presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the ordinance. Next, he presented the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up in smoke on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. And Aaron's sons handed the blood to him, and he sprinkled it around on the altar. As for the portions of fat from the ox and from the ram, the fat tail and the fat covering and the kidneys and the lobe of the liver, they now placed the portions of fat on the breast, and he offered them up in smoke on the altar. But the breast and the right thigh Aaron presented as a wave offering before the Lord, just as Moses had commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see what we would otherwise miss. Help us to see more clearly the work that you have done for us, unholy as we are, through the holiness of Jesus Christ, which now counts for us. Would you continue to build up this church as a holy priesthood for your glory? In Christ's name and for his sake we ask this. Amen. So start with me in Leviticus 8. We're going to try to make three basic points, at least one for each chapter, Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 9, and then make sort of a summary statement that will serve something like a third point. So we're going to look at Leviticus 8, and we're going to talk about the fact that the very first thing that happens when you begin to move, in, move from a, uh, a discussion of the sacrifices in 1 through 7 to the priests who will offer the sacrifices is that first... Before the priest can begin to do his work, the priest himself must be sanctified. That is, he must be set apart, he must be made holy in order to do the work that God has called him to do. So Leviticus 8 talks about or presents to us what it looks like or what it takes for a priest, for the priest to be sanctified. In Leviticus 9, what we want to see is that now that the priest has been sanctified, the priest now can do the work of sanctifying the people. Sanctified priest, sanctified people. And then number three, that all of this sanctification, depending on how your translation reads, you'll have words like purifying or consecrating. Those are all holiness words. In the Old Testament, it comes from basically the same root, the, the root that means to make holy. All of this holifying work going on, if we can make up that word, all of this work of making holy is for the ultimate purpose of God being with his people so that they can enjoy him and worship him. Point number one. God is making for his people a holy priest. God is sanctifying a priest for his people. One of the things that's interesting, we did not have a chance to read it for the, uh, just for the sake of time, 
is the process in Leviticus 8 is extremely elaborate. And everything that's done in Leviticus 8 to get the priest set up and ready to begin his work in Leviticus chapter 9, all of it comes directly from the Lord. So if you start in 8.1, notice, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... And then as you have time, you might want to do just a quick scan through Leviticus 8, whether now or on your own time, maybe on, on your own time so that you can pay attention to what's going on now, right? But on your own time, one of the things that you'll notice is that as you go through Leviticus 8, almost every section, every new thing that's done is concluded with a statement that this was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Everything that's done. And you say, okay, well, what is it that's being done? Well, the first thing that's done is that as Moses calls Aaron and his sons together so that they can be appointed as priests, the Lord wants this to be done in the sight of the people so that they know that this is the Lord providing a priest for them. Once the people are gathered and Aaron and his sons are gathered, there are a variety of things that are said to be done for Aaron and for his sons. If you look at 8.6, Leviticus 8.6, Moses and had Aaron and his sons come near, and he washed them with water. In verse 7, we read that Moses put the tunic on him and girded him with the sash and clothed him with the robe, and so on. Verse 12, if you skip down to verse 12, Moses poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Verse 14, he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. So this is just a sampling, but you start with a whole body washing to be purified. They're being dressed and fitted out with new clothes that represents the work that they're doing. A sin offering has to be provided. Burnt offerings have to be provided anointing with oil to show or to signify that they're being set out and separated for this unique work. All of this is being done, all of this elaborate work. And skip with me towards the end of chapter 8. This sort of gives you a feel of the momentousness of what's going on. If you go down in Leviticus chapter 8, start with me at verse 30. So Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood which was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, and on the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated or made holy Aaron, his garments, and his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. Skip down with me to verse 33. After talking about continuing to offer the sacrifices, listen to this. 8.33, you shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled, for he will ordain you through seven days. So what, what Leviticus 8 records is just what happens on the first day. This is going to be done over a period of seven days. 
Verse 34, the Lord has commanded to do as has been done this day to make atonement on your behalf. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and keep the charge of the Lord so that you will not die. For so I have been commanded. And chapter 8 ends, Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things which the Lord had commanded through Moses. Why do they have to do all of these things? Why do they have to do all of these things for a solid week? You can't leave, Aaron. Your sons can't leave. You can't go home. You can't spend time with your wife. You can't do anything else. You have to stay here in the precinct of the Lord's house for seven days to make sure that your ordination, your consecration is complete. There are at least a couple things that we ought to say here. One... And perhaps most evident or most important is to say that God intends for his people to understand that only those who are made holy have the right and the privilege of serving him and remaining with him. Only people who are made holy have the right and the privilege to serve him and to remain with him. This is important. Hard-working, laboring, diligent Christian, your work does not make you acceptable to the Lord. I don't care what the work is. I don't care if you're a pastor elder. I don't care if you're a deacon. I don't care if you're a sound choices volunteer. I don't care if you're a school teacher. I don't care if you're a doctor physician. Your work, your labor does not make you holy and acceptable to the Lord. God makes you holy so that your work is acceptable to him. Do you see that in Leviticus 8? Before Aaron, in other words, can do anything for himself or for the people, something must be first done to him. He is not qualified to enter into the presence of the Lord. He is not qualified to serve as a priest unless the Lord makes him qualified. When you read in Leviticus 8, one of the shocking things, it's somewhat subtle as you go through until you stop and you pause and you realize what's going on, is that everything that happens in Leviticus 8 happens to Aaron, happens for Aaron, by another person. Aaron does not do one thing in Leviticus 8. Moses does everything for him. Aaron does not anoint himself. He does not wash himself. He does not dress himself. He does not offer up a sacrifice for himself. Moses, as God's representative, Moses as the mediator, Moses does that for Aaron before Aaron can lift a finger and do anything that God has called him to do. And 
And this is going to go on for seven days. Why seven days? Well, seven in part seems to be symbolic of the fact that this setting apart, this making holy, consecrating, purifying, ordaining, doing this over a period of seven days is to signify that this is a full and complete work of holiness, work of sanctification. In other words, not only must Aaron be made holy in order to be able to enter in to do God's work, in God's presence, for God's people, not only must he be made holy, he must be made completely holy or he cannot come in at all. There is no way that any of us can do this for ourselves. The only reason that God would accept any of the work that we do for him, the only reason that God would accept any of our half-hearted, whole-hearted efforts of service and ministry to one another, it's not because of the purity of our work. It certainly is not because of the purity of our hearts. It's because of the pure, sanctifying work of Jesus Christ. He makes us qualified. We do not qualify ourselves. You don't need to turn here, but just listen. This is picked up in the New Testament all over the place. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says that the Lord, in, in bringing members, new Christians, into the church, into the body, that he's building up this spiritual house, that he then says is a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you hear the order of that? He is creating a spiritual priesthood that will offer up spiritual sacrifices, not the reverse. He's not bringing in people who are making spiritual sacrifices so that they can be a priesthood. He makes them a priesthood so that they can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to the Lord through Christ. Even when you do your work, in the presence of God, in fellowship with His Spirit, even then your work is not ultimately being accepted because it's your work, but because it's your work that is being sanctified through the blood of Christ. One other thing that we might add here, and just briefly, but this also is crucially important, and it goes along with this idea that it's the Lord who must make Aaron holy in order that he may serve him and the people, is to say, don't also lose sight of the fact that because it is necessary for God to make Aaron holy, that in and of itself is another reminder that Aaron is not holy in and of himself. Aaron is not holy in his content, in who or what he consists of. He is counted holy by God 
who provides a substitute for him. When, listen, even when, even when we enter into union with Christ through his sacrifice, through his atoning blood, even when we serve as priests in the kingdom of our God, even then, it is in no way due to any holiness that is on our own. We are not holy. We are counted holy for the sake of Christ. You can't create holiness by what you do. And by the way, you also, because the holiness is not yours to begin with, you also can't diminish or detract from that holiness. That's the blessing of Christ. When you have the, the holiness of God that comes through Christ, you get something that cannot be created and it cannot be destroyed. You are safe and secure through the blood of Christ. And all of this ultimately is being done so that the priest then can turn around in chapter 9 and can serve for the good or for the benefit of the broader people. So once a priest has been sanctified and set apart, now the people can be sanctified and set apart. By the way, if you, if you think about the person who's being sanctified, the person who's going to be the high priest, do you remember when the last time, the last time that we saw Aaron in the Old Testament, what major event Aaron took front and center order in? Do you remember what that was? Yeah, I think some of you said it. The golden calf. The last time Aaron took a central role took center stage in the story of God redeeming his people, Aaron was not leading God's people in worship and devotion to the Lord. He was doing the exact opposite. He was leading the people in apostasy and in falling away from the Lord. That is a testimony to the greater holiness that God gives to his people. If God can take someone like Aaron who betrayed him, who led his people to the brink of destruction and annihilation because of his weakness, because of the waywardness of his heart, and if God can sanctify him and say, now you go and see to it that my people grow in their sanctification and holiness, what will he not be able to do for you and me? Leviticus 9. Start with me in verse 7. Moses then said to Aaron, Come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering that you may make atonement for yourself and for the people. Then make the offering for the people that you may make atonement for them just as the Lord has commanded. Now can we just stop right here for a minute? This man has just gone through seven days 
of being purified and consecrated and anointed and washed and clothed. This is the eighth day, we're told in Leviticus 9, right? The start of a new week. The start, the very first day on the job as high priest. And what is the first thing that Aaron has to do? He has to make a sacrifice. For whom? For himself. For himself. If I'm standing there as one of the people, and I've just seen that for a solid week, this man has been being cleansed, purified, sanctified, set apart, and then I see that here we are on day one, and this guy is still having to go back and make atonement for himself again, I'm starting to wonder, when's it going to be my turn? When am I going to get something out of this? Praise God for Christ. Praise God for Christ, who is the true and better high priest. Who does not need to offer sacrifices for his own sin before he makes sacrifice for the people. But because the one and only truly qualified by nature and in essence is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, all of his attention can be given to me and to you, his people. He needs to spend no time sanctifying or purifying himself, which means that every ounce of his attention and work and effort goes to you. What a gift! Look with me in verses 15 through 22. When he does get around to offering sacrifices for the people, Read very carefully, listen to how this works out. Verse 15, Leviticus 9, 15. Then he, Aaron, presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering, which was for the people, slaughtered it and offered it for sin like the first. He also presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the ordinance. Next, he presented the grain offering and filled his hand with some of it and offered it up on smoke on the altar. Verse 18, then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, skip down to verse 22. Verse 22 seems to sort of summarize what we just read there and listen again to the order of what's done. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. Why that order? I think the order of the sacrifices here itself is one of the ways that God is teaching and instructing his people about how they approach him, how they enjoy him, how they worship him. So the sin offering is, is, I mean, that's not cryptic, right? The sin offering is being offered to pay for the sin of the people. The very first thing that must happen for the people, their sin has to be accounted for. It must be paid for. Then after the sin offering comes the burnt offering, and probably with it the grain offering. But the three main ones that are mentioned, the, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. The burnt offering comes after. Do you remember what the burnt offering was? 
Remember what it was for? We gave you the little list last week in the notes, right? You put that up on the mirror in your bathroom so that you could go through it through the week, right? All right, the burnt offering is given as a way to express one's devotion or fellowship with the Lord. It is itself in some way a symbol or a sign of being wholly given over to the Lord. So notice, sin paid for, because sin has been paid for, now in the burnt offering, what's being indicated is that these people are giving themselves over because you have taken care of their sin. They now are giving themselves over in full consecration to you. Everything in the burnt offering was given to the Lord. We're giving everything of ourselves to you. And then the third thing that's offered, the third sacrifice is peace offerings. Because our sin has been paid for, because we have been wholly given over to God, the people can sit down and have a meal and enjoy peace in the presence of a holy God. Sin fully paid for, people fully given over to the Lord, and God's people enjoying peace with their Creator and with their King. Did you also notice in 9.22 that verse 22 starts off by saying that Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people that he blessed them and he stepped down after making the sin offering. In other words after the offerings were made, after the sin offering, after the burnt offering and the peace offerings, after that, Aaron can bless the people. Aaron can pronounce to them that all of these sacrifices have been accepted by the Lord. Your sin has been accounted for. The Lord owns you as his people. He's taken you as his own. You have peace with God. He can bless them with a word of God's favor. Do you, you hear or do you see, do you recognize something like that going on even in our corporate worship today? How do we start our worship service? With a call to worship, just like the Lord called to Moses to come in. We offer up a call to worship to say every time that we come, we come on the basis of the fact that God is calling us to worship him. Not because we are inserting ourselves, God is inviting us. We come knowing that our sins have been paid for. We come knowing that because we have been redeemed, we no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong wholly and completely to the Lord. And we come knowing that because we belong to the Lord, because he has accepted us on the sacrifice of Christ, that we have peace with our God. One of the things that we will do starting next week is that we're, act, we're going to try as best we can to duplicate something like this, at least as, as far as we go through Leviticus, and maybe we'll do it longer. But one of the things that we want to do, we want to insert, starting next week, a prayer of confession and assurance in the forgiveness of sins. It is a good thing for God's people to know that they are guilty of sin, but that they have been pardoned and forgiven nonetheless. That is not a downer. That is uplifting 
when you know that there has been given a sacrifice to pay for your sin. That is where blessing comes from, to know the favor of the Lord through forgiveness. And all of this then, all of this to what end, to what purpose? The goal of sanctification is so that the people will be able to see the Lord and will be able to worship him. Look with me in Leviticus 9. Let me just point out a couple places. Look in uh, verse 4, 9-4. When Aaron is being told to take the animals and get them ready for sacrifices, verse 4, take an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. Again in verse 6, Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. And then look in verse 23. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all people. What is the goal? What is it that God wants through his work of sanctification for his people? It's not to suck your life of every ounce of fun. As if, by the way, holiness is the opposite of joy and happiness. Right? Kill that thought right now. The goal of sanctifying a priest so that the people can be sanctified, is so that they can see God. That's what holiness is for. Holiness is so that I can enjoy God. It's not for my pride. It's not to one-up my neighbor. It's to see God. And this is carried over in the New Testament as well. This is it, people. This is why the Lord intends to make you holy so that you can one day see him. In the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they will see God. Hebrews 12 Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. And Peter says in broader, all-inclusive language in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Our sanctification, our forgiveness is not so that we will have immunity from judgment. That is something that we get, praise God, but that's not the ultimate gift. 
We're not looking for diplomatic immunity in this world as we walk around like strangers and aliens, doing whatever we want because, well, you can't touch me. I'm accounted for. That's not the goal of holiness. We want God. And isn't this what you hear all through the Psalms over and over and over again? Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who doesn't want fullness of joy? Who doesn't want pleasure? If you want that, you know what you ought to want also? You ought to want holiness. Psalm 23, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 27, one thing, one thing I've asked the Lord that I would seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold, to see the beauty of the Lord. And to meditate in his holy temple. Psalm 84 a day, just one. One day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. All of this God is doing for his people, making us holy through the holiness of Christ so that we can receive the ultimate reward. Sometimes that reward that our hearts long for, but that we don't even know that we're longing for, it's God. That satisfaction and contentment that you get little hints of when you're at the beach or you see a sunset or you're enjoying your grandchild All of those things, all of those little joys trickles down from the ultimate source, God. And God says the only ones who are able to enjoy that kind of pleasure, that kind of joy, are those who are made fit for my presence those who are made holy. And because you are not holy and cannot make yourself holy, I have given you a high priest who is able to make you holy and fit for me. And it's given as a gift. Praise him. Let's pray.
Father, would you make your people holy so that we would hunger and thirst for you and your righteousness. Mold us and shape us into the image of your Son so that as your Son enjoyed complete and full fellowship with you, we likewise would be able to enjoy a deeper and greater fellowship as we grow in the holiness of Christ. Make your spirit of holiness, your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, effective in our hearts and minds to root out sin and impurity, to hold out to us the offer of joy in your presence. And Father, as you continue to make us holy, would you continue to cause the things of this world to grow increasingly dim? Do it, Father. We plead with you and we ask because we can't do it ourselves. Do it for the glory of your own Son, Jesus Christ, and for a demonstration of, your, of the power of your Spirit who works in us, through us, and among us. We'll praise you for it. Amen.